Uh, thanks, Phil, and, uh, and good afternoon, and thank you for having uh, me here. Uh, it, it's, this is a passion topic for me, and so uh, it, what I wanted to do was run through a pretty high-level discussion about social housing, um, about affordable housing, actually, um, and then if there's anything that piques people's interest or you know, any heckling or haggling that we want to have, absolutely open to that. You know, this is, can be quite a contentious topic. So I um, want to really give that space for, for everybody to feel connected and comfortable. Um, as, as Phil said, my name's Nick Green. I'm the, um, I'm the CE of Habitat for Humanity Central Region. So Habitat's a, a federated group of golf companies across the country that, uh, that do affordable housing for a wide range of people. Um, I'm also the co-chair of the Regional Housing Initiative. Um, I sit on Community Housing Aotearoa as a council member, and I'm a trustee of Bridge Housing Trust. And I suppose I tell you that for a little bit of kind of credibility. I've been in this for a long time. And that's kind of my professional resume, but what it doesn't say is I'm also a husband, a father, and a grandfather. And I want to make sure that the work that I do leaves the world a better place than when I came into it, because we've all got um, a legacy of, of our families, and the way housing's going, it's really excluding people, not what we'd expect to see uh, in, in New Zealand, Aotearoa, as we know it. So, you know, as we go through this, I really want to just keep it focused on, on why we're doing this and who we're looking to serve. Um, and this is Habitat's mission statement, and it says, a world where everyone has a decent place to live. And so that's everyone. It's not just a group of people who may um, have benefit from family or, you know, the, the state or whoever. It's actually everybody needs somewhere decent to live. And we also talk specifically about decent because... Um, you know, that means different things to different people, so we want to make sure that when we're talking about that, there's a bit of a, bit of a, um, a benchmark as to what decent really means. Um, and, and I think you know, a great place to start is, is why do we care? Why, why do we care about housing? Um, and, and the answer to that is that housing is the single most determinant factor in well-being. It has such tentacles into everything else. If you look at our health and education system, people who are living in poor substandard housing, being moved around a lot, um, are un, um, uh, unfairly represented in all the negative statistics. And we also know that housing costs make up um, the most significant part of people's budgets. And when your housing costs too much, you start making sacrifices in other areas. So you start not buying food, you start not paying for registration on your vehicles, you make all kinds of choices, and those have negative outcomes later on. Okay, so if we can get the housing right, and, and without getting into the psychological theory of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right at the bottom there is housing. Shelter, water, and food are the three things that we need to survive. Right, everything else builds on top of that. So without getting housing right, we actually create real issues in our communities. Um, but the other thing is, this is not about houses. Okay? This is about people. And what I wanted to do was just start with a, a little um, four-minute video of one of our families, because I think they say it far better than I do about what housing actually means to them. Before I owned my own home, I was living in a state home with my dad and my three children. It was tough. We were, the kids were always sick. My son had attended over 300 clinic appointments and he was only six years old. So he was 
already diagnosed as chronic severe asthmatic. The house was cold, it was damp, um, a lot of mildew. There were times when I'd lie in bed and I could hear the water physically dripping off the windowsill. It was hard to find a home full stop. Um, what was available to me at the time was a state home and I guess all I knew at the time was a state home. I was born into a state home in Kawarau. I was raising my own children in a state home and I promised myself the next time I moved it would be into our own home. Yeah, I didn't know how that looked, I didn't know what it looked like, I just knew I wanted more, I just didn't know what more looked like. It was at a friend's home and they talked about how they owned their own home through Habitat. So that got me a bit interested. And then I saw an ad in the paper about um, an evening that they had, so I went along to that. With Habitat, what happens is you pay your weekly amount of rent. That rent accumulates, and what happens is what you pay into your rent becomes your deposit for your home. So say, for instance, your home is valued at 200000 and in five years you have accumulated 60000 You approach your bank for the other $140,000. I received the call to say that I qualified for the house and I actually dropped to my knees and um, I broke out to the ugly cry, but I went and got banana boxes and started packing. <laughs> I think it was six months down the line or something like that, but yeah, I packed everything there and then and we lived out of banana boxes from that moment onwards. Home to me, is about identity and a place to make memories. When I was young and worrying about a pair of shoes and worrying about meals at the table when now the kids don't need to worry about things like that. There's no panic, you know, we're in a double glazed home with carpet. My son is maintained. He hasn't been to hospital for three years. They are well, and uh, that's all that matters. They will stay well because they have the warmth, they have the healthy home without mildew, the warm, yeah. I have something to leave for my children. I couldn't say that before. This is home and no one's ever gonna buy this, and the children know it's never going to be sold because they've all put their hands to this and they've all built it. When I say um, dreams come true, I really do feel like I'm in a dream. I really do. Because this is all my heart has ever desired is to leave a legacy for my kids. Probably because in a way I've wanted to belong so badly. Um, I know that they'll have somewhere to belong. I would say to anybody that is experiencing housing needs though or has a desire to own their own home to um, go and see what's available in the community. But our people can't own their homes without the agencies informing them and educating them too. They need the encouragement to engage and once they get the encouragement I believe then they will connect with people like Habitat and I do believe there's no greater person or agency to engage with than Habitat.
Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't have to pay her to say those things. She came from a place where her kids were, I think they went to hospital like 120 times um, in, in one year, just with all the different things were going on, being exacerbated by their housing condition. And Tammy worked really, really hard. She's been one of our um, families that's got through the program really quickly, um, went off and did, did her um, university education, um, and now has a degree and is, uh, is working in social work. And all those things, she was the first in her family to do a lot of stuff. So you know, we can't take credit for that because that was part of who she was. But we gave her the platform to be able to do it. So I suppose that's the background. That's the, that's the, the place we're coming from. What we want to talk about now is... So what is it really like out there? And there's a little bit of preaching to the choir, okay? Um, I know that you all understand the housing crisis. It's been in the media for the last five years. Um, there's a lot going on. But sometimes figures help make things a little bit more uh, understandable. And so we did this survey um, back in 2018 that looked at what the, the housing status was and where the shortfalls were. And the answer was the shortfalls were large and they were everywhere across the Waikato. Um, 75,000 houses short by 2043 is the headline number. We need to build more, and we need to do it quickly. So that's, that's the, the snapshot. All of this is publicly available information, so there's no inside, inside jokes here today. Okay? Um, and I can give you references and, and connections to any of the stuff you want to dig into more deeply. But that's the headline number. Remember, we need to build 75,000 more houses in the next 20 years. Otherwise, that's just in the Waikato. Yeah. And when you look at that distribution, um, you know, Te Aumutu, Waipa does not escape. All right, there's a shortfall there as well, and we'll talk about that um, a bit later on. Remember at the start I said, you know, we talk about decent. Um, what does that actually mean? Well, the uh, Human Rights Commission has done um, a lot of work on this, and what they've done is captured international best practice and given us some headlines about what a decent house actually looks like. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. One of them, obviously, is affordable. Right? So affordability is a, is a big issue that, uh, that needs to be addressed, um, but so is accessibility the habitability of the home so that you know it's not falling down around you. Uh, there's a number of other things that sit there. Where is it? How, ex how easily accessible are services? All those things make up what is a decent home. Culturally appropriate is, um, is in that list of um, things. And you can download this off the um, Human Rights Commission. There's a, it's a massive, big, thick document, as all government agencies like to do. It's you know, 600 pages long. So, um, so yeah, so there's, there's that um, there, which we kind of go, yes, well, we knew that already but it's great to have it as a government department because then the government gets in behind and starts enabling some of these things to happen. And, and I guess the question is, why, do these, what, what, why is the housing crisis the way it is? And there's a number of drivers behind it, and to simplify it, you know, a lot of people go, oh, it's a supply and demand issue. Yeah, but what does that really mean? Well, in some ways it means we're not building enough houses, and otherwise it means that the demand has gone up significantly, um, and what the market is providing isn't providing for the people who are in the highest degree of need. So on that list are a bunch of things that sit um, in different spheres of influence. So where you have things like um, land availability, the council, our elected officials, control what land's available through zoning. Right? So when you look out there and you go, New Zealand is the land of milk and honey, there's empty land everywhere. Why can we not just build more houses? The answer is because that land's not zoned for housing. 
and to get the land zone for housing needs to go through a council process. And the council thinks carefully about that because you can't build a house in the middle of a paddock without connection to three waters. Am I allowed to use that word? It's contentious. Um, you know, three waters basically um, drinkable water, sewerage, and stormwater. So all of those things are council services that need to get provided. So you imagine that and going, oh, we'll just sprawl everywhere. The cost of doing that is horrendous. It's prohibitive. And so each of those bullet points, and I can go into them in more detail, but we're keeping this high level, each of those bullet points drives what we can do around supply. And then on the other side of it is the demand. We've had massive influx of people coming back to New Zealand because of COVID and everybody going, retreat to the island in the South Pacific. Um, that's uh, change in our family unit, so demand for one and two bedroom houses has gone through the roof, as opposed to the good old Kiwi three or four bedroom house, and yet the market's still building three bedroom, four bedroom, media room, five car garaging, you know, that's where the market has been delivering. So there's all these different mismatches between what's being provided and what's needed. And you know, we need to sort of reshape that, um, that, that, this conversation and what's being supplied. These are just graphs just I just grabbed off the, um, off the internet yesterday, um, the latest versions of, which basically show things around affordability. So when we talk about affordability, we talk about um, median household income to median house price. So it's a way of measuring what, how affordable it is. And the world standard says that people shouldn't pay more than three times their household income to purchase a home. Right, three times. So the median household income in New Zealand is $87,000 a year. So if I do some maths, about $270,000 would be an affordable house. If you can find a section somewhere for less than $400,000, you're doing well. There is no housing. And so what we've done in New Zealand, we've gone, oh, three times, that's just not achievable. All right, let's make it five times. So five times, according to Demographia, is... Um, severely unaffordable, right? That's the top. That's their top number. You don't get any definition higher than that. So that red line there, the second red line where the little blue thing goes up, um, that's severely unaffordable. And then about 2009, we went north of that. And so now, as a country, our house price to household income is sitting around about nine times. Right. So it's not affordable for anybody. And then the other graph on the other side talks about, so that's the purchase price, then the graph on the other side talks about the servicing costs. So how much does it cost you to live there? How much are you paying out of your weekly kind of income? And the, the, again, the international standard is 30%. So you shouldn't pay more than 30% of your income for either servicing a mortgage or for paying rent. Right? You think, okay, that's reasonable. What that graph shows you is the number of households paying more than that. And so if you own your own home, about 75% of New Zealand households are paying more than 30%. There's lots of numbers in there. Most people are living unaffordably if they own their own homes. And if you're living in a rental property, about 25 to 30% of people are paying more than that for their rental property. So across the board, affordability doesn't exist. All right, that's, that's kind of the headline here, is that really struggling in New Zealand, the housing market in New Zealand, to make it affordable. Um, and then I downloaded some stuff for Te Amutu because I, I thought, you know, let's, let's put it into context here because people go, oh, I live in a small rural town in New Zealand. You know, that, that's an urban issue. 
It's not a Riemann issue. It's an overflow issue now. All right. So now what we've got is um, population of Tiamutu forecast for 2043 says that most people, so that graph pushing right, are going to be in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. All right. So you've got an aging population. Um, the demand for housing, so the first two graphs are one and two bedroom, so that's where most of the demand for housing is going to sit. Um, and then we've got this graph at the bottom that shows uh, YPAR house prices since, and I can't quite read it from here, since about 2009. And you can see it was tracking along quite nicely, and I think the bottom there is about 200, I think that bottom line is 300,000. Um, and then it just ramps up, so now it's about $700,000 is the average house price in Te Amutu. Right? So you guys are not insulated from the reality of the housing situation in New Zealand. See it everywhere, overflow from large urban centres, people going, can't afford to buy in Hamilton anymore. Ah, I know, I'll commute, I'll live in Te Amutu. Houses are cheap there. Mm, not so much. What happens next? Kihiki, Otrahonga, Tikawiti. Right? And so this next slide shows what happens to rents as well, where people are going again. Rent price has just gone north from about $300 a week to about $500 a week in Te Amutu. Um, and the other one shows the average increase in rent in New Zealand districts across the last 12 months. This is not a one-time snapshot. If I downloaded all of these, you would see that year on year on year, 10% increase in rent every year is, is just how it has been. And especially in the smaller regions, and you can't see it on there, but um, uh, East Coast... Uh, you know, Gisborne, those kind of ways, has gone from $100 a week to $400 a week in about two years. Just because when you're looking for a house to buy as an investor, suddenly where are you going to buy? You're going to buy where the house is cheap and you get good yield. Right? And so all of the economic factors that tie into this are driving some real issues with the housing market. And you know, some of us have done quite well out of it. You know, New Zealand has an illusion of wealth because a lot of people do own homes and those houses have gone up in price. And so suddenly you're sitting on this big valued asset. I mean, you don't want the market to crash, right? Because that's your personal wealth. So we've got this real issue about how do we balance that and how do we also make things affordable for people who aren't in that market. So I want to introduce this thing called the housing continuum. Um, it's the way that we talk in the, in the housing sector about the different sorts of housing that are available and where they sit for people um, of different socioeconomic sort of cohorts, if you like. So at the left-hand end um, is emergency and transitional housing. You know, it's people living in hotels. We go through public housing, which is state housing. For most of you will remember it's called state housing, kainga ora. Um, then we get into um, rental property, progressive ownership, and then the market. Okay? So the market kind of looks after itself, um, and there's no subsidy there. Um, everything else needs some sort of subsidy in it to give people access. And so that's why we just want to cover off, and, uh, and this is where you know, there's going to be some conversation questions that come out of this, no doubt. So we'll start with um, emergency and transitional housing. This is where... We've acknowledged that there are people who are completely excluded from housing, right? So that was uh, what we call, used to call homelessness, rough sleepers, people who lived sleeping under, the, under a um, bridge. Um, when COVID hit, um, we, we went, right, we've got to do something about this. Let's put people into hotels as a temporary fix. And if you could read that thing on the right-hand side there, the, big, the, the long paragraph, it said, for seven days. 
right? And so the idea was that we would take someone out off the street, put them into a hotel for seven days until we found them somewhere else to live. That hasn't happened. All right? So people have been in emergency accommodation in a hotel for um, six months, 12 months, 18 months. All right? And if you look at the cost of that, you can't, uh, some of you might have better eyes than me, but um, you can see that that $22 million there, that is spend in the Waikato, that's not nationwide spend, that's the Waikato spend for the quarter from January to March. Okay, $22 million. That works out to be around about $16,000 per family unit in a hotel. It's about 1300 bucks a week is what we're paying. That is not a good spend. It's not a good spend. We've got to change that. And the only way to change it is to have more housing. Because people are in hotels, they don't want to be there. Right? These people aren't sitting there. <laughs> um, I think one of my kids said to me, man, that'd be awesome. We're not living in a hotel. It'd be like being on holiday. Anybody here spent more than a week in a hotel? <laughs> it is horrible. We do a course for these people, um, and they come and tell us, and you know, some of the things we just don't even think about, like Nick, how am I supposed to go to Pack and Save and buy a week's worth of food so I can feed the kids and get home to my hotel and store it in a bar fridge that's this big? You know, how does that work? It doesn't work. Right? And so the next step from that is go, right, okay, we'll take them out of a hotel and put them into transitional housing. So we've been building flat out, leasing things to put people into short-term accommodation, 12 weeks, you know, transition them from there back into the market not enough supply in the market. And so those people are getting stuck in transitional housing. It's supposed to be 12 weeks. It's now permanent. And we're spending, and I don't want to make this about money, but I want to give you context, right? Because when we talk about building other housing, um, we have to understand where money's going now. $771,000 a week. That's a weekly number. Okay? So that is a horrendous amount of money that we're spending to support those 9,000 households in the Waikato. It's cheaper than uh, hotels, but not much. All right, so at that emergency and transitional end, there is huge demand. There are people who are in absolute dire straits. We're doing the best we can as a community to house them and to support them into decent housing. Unfortunately, further up the spectrum, there is no more housing available. And so they get stuck. And it's better than sleeping under a bridge or in, in the, um, you know, the, the, alcove of a shop when it's closed, but it's not great. So as we go from this, we step up the continuum a little bit, and we go to the public homes, right? So this is, this is state housing. And at present, there are 64,000 state houses in New Zealand. Um, there are about another 10,000 houses owned by people like Habitat that are called community housing providers. So there's about 75,000 houses that sit in this public housing pool, right? 75,000. How many of those are empty? None, right? It is full. On the report, they have to report how many are empty. So there's 1,387 empty houses across New Zealand at the moment. Most of those are in what's called the Tamaki Regeneration Project, where they are bulldozing them, taking them off quarter-acre sections, taking one down, putting five, six, seven, eight up. Right, so they're empty for a purpose. So we've got 75,000 government pipeline, um, acquisition pipeline is looking to build about another 10,000 houses over the next two years. So by 2024, they're hoping 
to have about 85,000 state houses available. Right, so that's it. Another 10,000. Remember 10,000. Because my math is not great, but this is the public housing wait list. There are currently 25,000 households on the wait list. So how many more houses are we building? 10,000. How many households are on the wait list? 25,000. We're a bit short. Okay, We're a little bit short. So about a 15,000 household deficit in the current housing plan. And this list, look at, look at this, the incline of the list. You know, this is not stagnant. This has doubled over the last four years. So, you know, there's a real issue with, a, with supply and demand in this public housing space. Remember, these are people we're talking about, right? 25,000 households. That's not 25,000 people. Average households around about 3.6 people. So we're talking 100,000 people sitting on a wait list. And the other thing the government did not long ago, what well, was a wee while ago now, um, is stopped putting people on the, on the wait list who weren't in severe housing need. So when I grew up, um, you know, I'm, I'm 50, um, 30 years ago, anybody could go on the state housing list. You know, if, you want, if you wanted a state house, it was kind of like, it was just available. You'd go down to Wins and you'd put yourself on the list. They stopped doing that uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, and now you've got to be category A or category B, and that is severe housing deprivation. Right? So this is, not, this is not people who can't afford to live in the house and think, well, a state house would be better. This is, this is people coming out of emergency housing. This is people coming out of real housing need. Um, and then there's a... There's a um, uh, sort of a cutout down the bottom there which just talks specifically about WIPAR. I'm going to walk over here so I can see it. <laughs> um, and what that basically says is there are 104 people on the housing list in WIPAR at the moment. So in your community is 104 families waiting for a state house. Um, there are no empty houses and there's 230 odd, 236 state houses in Waipa district. Okay, so there's not many here. It's a it's a minimal number. And Housing New Zealand previously, or Ministry of Housing and Urban Development, who run this whole thing, other other big big dad, big parent entity, um, previously have said there's no housing demand in in Waipa. Uh, you know, all the demands in Hamilton. And when you when you compare the numbers, you know, it can look like that, rounding error, but actually there's significant demand here in Waipa now. Ah, okay, let's keep going. Go up the housing continuum a little bit more. Affordable rental. So this is, this is people accessing the market. You know, if we haven't got enough state houses, how do we get people into market housing? The rental market, you know, there's, there's, there's people who own property, probably some of us own rental properties. How do we get people into those? Well, we do that through another subsidy called accommodation supplement. You don't have to be on a benefit to get it. A lot of people do get it who are on medium to low income. And that costs us... Uh, was that $3.6 million a quarter? Okay, so it's a lot of money being poured into, into the economy just to fund that affordable rental property. And that goes directly to the person who then helps pay for their housing costs. I think that actually that's, that's not right. That's $3.6 million a week. It's a week. So yeah, it's a lot of money. 
Okay. Um, progressive ownership. So previously we've been talking about rental properties, you know, people just living in, in rental properties. The next step up on the housing continuum is a place where we say, well, we understand that home ownership gives people benefits. It gives you what's called secure tenure. So that means you can live there as long as you want to, you know, at the, at the whim of your landlord. Um, it also gives you financial benefit. And most of us have probably benefited from owning our own home. How do we get people who can't buy a market house into an ownership property? We do that through a process called progressive ownership, and there's a number of different finance models. Tammy talked about one of them, which was our rent to buy. Um, there is lease to occupy, um, there is uh, um, shared equity, and then there's um, and the other one uh, there, what's the other one? Oh, and the other one's lease. Okay, so there's a bunch of different models. I won't talk about how they work unless someone wants to know. If we can talk about that later. But each of those is a subsidy that goes to a family to try and get them into the housing market so they can buy their own home. All right, that's where Habitat's genesis, that's where our roots came from in that uh, in that progressive ownership space, and we've we've grown from there. But it's still our, one of our core programs. Our rent to buy program has been going for 30 years, and we've housed about 700 families in New Zealand through that um, through that program. Um, and then above that is the market. And you know, people say, oh, there's nothing in the market. Well, actually, most of you will have seen, if you've got kids, you'll understand, there's, you can pull out your KiwiSaver, there's a first home grant that you can get, there's a, there's a bunch of other support that sits within the um, government's um, books, if you like, um, that help people in market housing. And so all those things are uh, administered by Kainga Order, um, the state housing entity, and uh, and anybody can access them as long as your household income is less than $150,000 a year. So the government is trying to support people right across the housing continuum. And I think what's important to know is that we have to do something at each point of the housing continuum. We can't focus solely on one area because if you think about it like this, you've got a tube full of ping pong balls, right? It's full. If you put one in at the top end, what's going to happen to the bottom end? Something's going to fall out, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of people sitting in emergency transitional housing at the moment are the ones that have fallen out because what we've done is moved down the continuum. People who were once first-home buyers are now long-term renters. They pay more in rent, which has meant that people who used to rent are now in state housing. State housing's full. So we've got to fix the whole housing continuum. And this is our plea, our plea to government, is you need to make sure that your policies are fair across the whole housing continuum. If you just pour millions and millions of dollars into homelessness, you're not going to fix the problem. And we're already seeing it. People have got nowhere to go. So what's needed? Um, you know, I've stolen this slide from one we did at, um, when I put my regional housing initiative hat on. We did a briefing to, um, to uh, Megan Woods, Minister of Housing, and we said to her, you know, we need the government to focus on the long-term not on the three-year popularity contest we call general election. Right? Housing is not a short-term fix. It's not a cheap fix, as you'll see. There's billions of dollars being spent on housing that takes years and years and years to do. It's a 10 to 20-year program. And so what we're asking for is a program of funding so that when the government changes, we don't all have to start again and figure out what the new fund is. Um, and a program of housing that says we know what our pipeline is for the next 15 years, because that's the only way we can actually get some momentum going here. Every time you change a setting, everybody goes back to zero and starts again. 
and we know that the first 12 months are the hardest, right? After that, it gets easier. Um, the other thing, I was, and I was talking to somebody about this before, so part of the government's policy settings are this thing called the NPSUD, which stands for National Policy Statement on Urban Development. Um, Got to love government acronyms. Um, I, I used to be in the military, and so I thought we had the market cornered on acronyms until I started working in housing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, look, some other clever person's come up with all these little um, TLAs, three-letter abbreviations. <laughs> so um, the NPSUD um, forces council to reconsider their housing settings with, an, with a um, focus on increasing housing outcomes, improving affordability, and increasing density. That is mandated on councils. And Waipa Council, like Waikato Council and Hamilton City Council, are tier one councils. They are required to do this under law. And so their reset of the um, long-term plan, their district plan, has to address all of these things. So, and I've just made a bullet points there. Intensification is a given. There is no choice. Car parking, they've been specifically told you cannot require car parking for um, intensive housing development. So that's why you see lots of places going up, no car parking on section, everyone parking on the street. That's a government policy direction. Um, it has to be responsive. It has to have wider outcomes not just council outcomes, it has to have community outcomes. They have to consult with the community. Evidence and engagement, evidence of engagement is mandatory. So when they were doing so, I hope all of you provided feedback to the LTP that was just out, because the council were required to do it. They don't build those cool websites with all the, you know, fill in here and all the cartoon people and some graphic designer went crazy, because they feel like it, they're being told to do it. Right? That's their responsibility. So if we look at um, Te Aumutu, this is the Te Aumutu, um, plan for housing intensification, and it's constantly being updated. There are multiple growth cells that are being identified in Te Aumutu, and there's one of these for Cambridge, and there's one of these for Hamilton, and there's one of these for the future-proof corridor from Hamilton to Auckland. Absolutely the future planning requirements of council, all right, so and our central government. So you'll see that the Te Aumutu Township has got a whole bunch of identified growth cells which will deliver more housing over the next, um, next 30 years. Right? They're bringing some of these forward, and so you'll see that in the media. I think T2 came, was being approved early. Um, and of course, the challenge with this is that to bring forward a development, um, a growth cell, all the pipes have to go on the ground, and so all that cost has to be spent first before you can even build a house there. Um, you'll see I put a little thing there um, up the top. Um, that's where we're sitting here right now on Z in Zion Church. So the plans for this site are complementary to what council are being required to do. And I suppose I just want to finish with a couple of examples um, and we can open up to questions. So what we, what we talk about in Habitat is what we call a mixed tenure, mixed typology development where we want to not just build slums and ghettos, <laughs> okay, which you know, people like to throw out there, oh, you're going to build a slum. Um, well, no, no one wants to do that. Right? No, no one wants to build a slum. What we want to build is a functional community. And how we do that is by mixing up the tenure types, so some rental properties, some um, ownership properties, some smaller properties, some larger properties, so that you don't just end up with the 
massive tower of social housing. Nobody wants to see that happen. Um, we did this at uh, Tikarere, which, is a, um, which was a Waikato Tainui development in Hamilton East, where there was about 50 properties. Um, Habitat's got 12. Uh, housing Foundation, through their um, shared equity model, did about 12. There's some uh, public housing um, in there as well, some state housing, and then there's a sale to market. And so it's proven as a methodology, and this is also based on international best practice. Um, we're also looking at expanded pensioner housing. So those of you who will have seen, Habitat operates Freeman Court down around the corner here on Roach Street. We also own Palmer Street uh, pensioner houses, and we've got a um, retirement village out, Alma Brotherhood, out in Kihiki. From the demographics in, um, in Te Amutu, ageing population demand for smaller properties for older people. And so one of our developments is the redevelopment um, of Palmer Street, taking out the old pensioner housing that uh, we bought from council over a five to ten year period and replacing it with brand new stuff. Starting with a, um, a ten unit build at the end of Freeman Court. We've just finished spending about two million dollars on Freeman Court itself, all upgraded, nice new ensuited rooms, um, all, all done. We're now moving to the next thing. And so trying to address, again, across the housing continuum, different projects for different parts of that continuum. And then, oh, and then we've also got a, um, a development with uh, Waipa Council in Cambridge, so a little bit outside the scope of this, but um, in Cambridge um, in Vale Court, right, which is, a, um, which is an existing pensioner housing, which they'll build, will operate, and we can bring some subsidy into it through that public housing fund. And then finally, um, Project 1310. And you know, one of the things that attracted us to this as Phil said, we've been talking about social housing, um, about housing for about three years. And you know, the, st the starting place for anything that Habitat does is to build relationship and to understand and align principles. Because we're not a developer, we're not here to make as much money as we can. If we wanted to do that, we'd, we'd, density on the site would be significantly higher than what we're planning, right? Um, we want to make sure we create a um, highly functional, desirable community of people on this site here um, that is a, um, an example of what can be done to the Te Aumuru community. That, that's our goal. At the end of the day, we want people to love living here. And that means that we can put in a mix of sell to market. We can put in some progressive ownership. We can have more people like Tammy in here realising their life dream of owning their own home. And we can sell some, um, and, and we can also operate some under the public housing model. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, people in some of the debate is around public housing and you know who those people are and you know I, I did a bit of a little bit of research recently and and looked at how many state houses you know 65,000 ish did I say 63,000 something like that state houses and how many of those tenants are problematic and it's less than one percent okay so when you think about that if you were a landlord and you had a hundred houses and one of your tenants was a, was was difficult you'd probably be patting yourself on the back and going, man, I'm doing a good job. You know, housing New Zealand's got 65,000 tenants. Less than 1% are actually difficult. Now, that's not to say that's not a problem for the people who live around them, but what it does do is try to put it into context, right? That just because you do public housing doesn't mean you're going to have a gang pad moving in next door. So that's um, the, the, the vision for here, a mix of bedroom, a number of bedrooms, and all the plans are up the back there. 
Um, how do we want to create this environment? And I said this to Phil um, and the, the elders here. You know, my bo- I answer to a board, um, you know, and they hold me accountable for what I do. Um, and they said to me that if they drive into Te Aumutu, down that hill just there, what the first thing they want to see with this development, they want to be proud of it. You know, they want to look at it and go, wow, that's a great, um, great development you've done there. If they drive down there and see something else, then I might be answering a few difficult questions. Right? So I've got a personal um, uh, stake in, uh, in making this a, um, uh, you know, a, an outstanding outcome. Again, this is about people. Right? This, is not about, this is not about houses. This is not about money. This is about people. And a couple of families and some quotes that we got from our Tikarere development, who, you know, these guys that we select um, are excluded from the market. They would not get into the market without support. And yet they are decent, hard-working New Zealanders who are just looking for a hand up. Yeah, we just need to remember that. That we've all had um, opportunity. We've all made bad decisions, I can guarantee, across our lives. Um, and yet, um, we sometimes hold other people to a higher account than we hold ourselves. And so, you know, what we ask as Habitat is that you give people a chance and that allow us to give them the hand up to get them into decent housing.